I have a quick question for you, though, uh, just a show of hands. I want to know who here thinks that rules are hard to follow. How many people here think rules, and that's not me, a little hard to follow? Okay, make a mental note of all those people that just raised their hands. They're all, they're all of our troublemakers, right? How about just the opposite? How many people here are strict rule followers? Anybody here? Cheryl, she has her hand up. She's lying. So. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. She is. I think so. So, um, all of you that just wrote, uh, raised your hands, do you drive the speed limit? Gotcha. Didn't I? Uh-huh. All right. Okay. So, I recently came across this survey where Christians were asked, of all of the Ten Commandments, what is the hardest commandment to follow? Which one of those 10 is the hardest? And uh, do we have those up on the screen? I think we may have those coming up there, okay? The 10 commandments, all right? Don't have any other gods before God. Don't make uh, yourselves an, an idol. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your mom and your dad. Don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't want other people's stuff, Okay? So here's our, our list. What do you think was the hardest one of these commandments that Christians said was the hardest one to keep? Anybody have a, an idea? Some people say 10, okay. Um, I, all right. It was number four. Number four, Christians say that is the hardest one for, for us to, to uh, follow remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. And I'm not going to ask for a uh, show of hands of how many people break that because when we get to murder and adultery, that would get real awkward. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. <clears throat> um, the second most difficult commandment to keep was number five, honoring your mother and father. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's awesome, Declan. That's uh, <clears throat> The next one was number three, using the Lord's name in vain. And then uh, number, uh, then after that was the first one, don't have any other gods before God. And number, the, la or the fifth one was don't covet, don't want other people's stuff. Now, thankfully, in this survey, no Christian said that six or seven were the most difficult ones to keep, adultery and murder. So we're thankful about that. But these are just the Old Testament commandments. They were given to Moses by God, and they were given to him a long, long time ago before Jesus. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he also has his own list, and he sums up all of these by saying the greatest commandment, though, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He said, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so now I ask you, what do you think is the hardest commandment to keep? See, those first 10 in the Old Testament seem a little easy compared to those that Jesus just gave us. 
And if I tried really hard and uh, if I was a little bit more diligent and habitual in following all of the rules, then, then I think following those first 10 would be a snap compared to loving God and loving others the way that I should. Because my love for God is mixed in with all of my human emotions, and I have a limited understanding, and just some people are jerks, right? (laughs) And they're hard to love. They're difficult to love them, right? But there are other commandments that Jesus also gave us. And just like the original 10, Jesus gave these not as a suggestion to say, hey, if you would just follow these things, you'd live a, a troubled, free life. That's It wasn't a suggestion at all. Jesus' commandments are just as much a command to us as those 10. And so, in fact, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yeah, that's a little scary, isn't it? It's a little scary for us to realize that our love for Jesus is reflected by our obedience to Jesus. Jesus. So what are some of the things that Jesus told us to do? I just want to add these to the list. Love one another as Jesus loves us. Pray for your enemies. Repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus is in the Father. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Pray always and go and make disciples. There's a couple of those that seem, seem easy enough to me, but for the most part, they make the original 10 seem like child's play to me. These are the tough ones. And in my opinion, I don't have a scientific study based on this at all, but I think number seven on that list, go and make disciples, is probably our most ignored commandment by Jesus. It kind of hurts if you remember Jesus saying that if you love me, you will remember my commandments. And I have research to to back this up a little bit. Currently, nationwide, 23% of Christian adults, of those that attend church on a regular basis and say that they are Christian, 23% say they are discipled in any way at all. 19% say they're discipling somebody. Our, our staff just came back from a retreat together. We went up with, to Wisconsin and, and spent a few days with one another. And one of the takeaways is that we have to hold each other accountable for our own spiritual growth. And so we're going to be asking each other, <clears throat> uh, who is discipling you? And who are you discipling? So we're going to finish out, we've been going through this uh, Dirty Job Sermon series where uh, we've been looking at this uh, God who gets his hands dirty in our lives. Uh, If you're thankful that we serve a God who still continues to be involved in our lives, say amen this morning. Can you imagine it any other way? That our God would just be hands off and, and just let everything never get involved in our life? See, it's, it's established that God is very actively involved in the life of his children. So do we also have dirty hands? 
One way to figure that out about discipling is asking, whom is your disciple? Or whom is your discipler? And just because it sounds a little bit more catchy, let's say it with some bad grammar, who is my who? Right? Who is your who? Remember that the guy we spoke about last week was a man named Saul. Saul was this pretty bad dude. He was given a job by the uh, chief priest uh, of the Jewish church. And his job was to go out and to hunt down all of these people that started following Jesus, to hunt down all of these people of the way, the new way. And Saul took his job very seriously. But also, as we learned last week, Saul had this radical experience with Jesus that left him blind, and and he was trying to figure out how he went so wrong, and now that he knows the truth about Jesus, how is he going to live his life with this new truth? Now, Saul eventually is known as Paul, and a, a lot of people think that this was some you know, magical name change that Jesus descended and said, your name will now be Paul. But it didn't happen like that at all. He always had those two names. Saul was his uh, Hebrew name. His Roman name, his Gentile name was Paul. Uh, Some of you don't know this about Pastor Shauna, but Shauna's real name isn't Shauna. It's Amanda. It's true. Pastor Callie's real name is Calandria. Let's all say Calandria. Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> Cheryl's real name is Bernice. You didn't know. You didn't know that. No, that's not true. But um, the others are true. The others are true, just not Bernice. We see Saul being called Saul up until the 13th chapter of Acts, and then all of a sudden, he's called Paul from that point on, and he's never referred to as Saul again. And so Paul becomes the church's, the new church's first missionary, and his job now was to travel around the region uh, starting new churches to follow Jesus, spreading the good news about Jesus. It was a huge job, and he would need some help along the way, and he would grab in uh, some people from here and there, these disciples that would start following him, people that Paul is now training and tutoring and, and uh, directing them on and showing them what to do. One of those guys, his name is Timothy, and, and he, Timothy's not just a student. He's more than that to Paul. Paul now has taken Timothy under his wing, uh, but there's, <clears throat> there's some times that Paul needs to send Timothy out by himself. He needs to or, just, or leave Timothy at a particular place. And see, it was Timothy's job then to straighten out a church that had really gotten off course. I, I don't think if you were one of those churches, you wanted to see Timothy show up because things have gotten bad. I want you to look at this. There's a verse in one of the letters from Paul. He was writing to this church that had gotten way off course. It's in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 17. And Paul says to this church, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of my way of life in in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. 
So in light of Jesus' commands to go and and make disciples, we're going to spend some time looking at what that looks like for us in the life of the church. Because maybe you've been discipled or maybe you're not really sure what it looks like. And I think we all have some definitions and some ideas of what discipleship is. But look, let's look how Paul actually discipled Timothy. So we're going to look at a, a couple different models and we're going to see these, these are valid. They're super important, but they're also lacking a little bit compared to how Paul discipled Timothy. And as I go through this list, if you're part of PFN or whatever church that you attend, you might recognize some of these things uh, here. And again, none of these are wrong. All of these are needed. And even some of these, you might need a little bit of training to do well and, or a special talent to pull this off. But discipleship is actually a whole lot easier than we think it is. So let's, what are some of these <clears throat> traditional discipleship models? The first one, you're probably familiar with this, is the teacher. It's the most common discipleship model in the church. A teacher, what does a teacher do besides meets with his or her students in some sort of a classroom setting and, and gives them information that they think that that student should have for the week? And then they come back again the next week. Or, or sometimes we might even just give them a book and say, here, read this for yourself, right? The limiting part of that model is helping that person actually apply <clears throat> what they're learning to their life. Now, of course, we can, we can tweak that classroom uh, setting a little bit or we can follow up with them and have some coffee with them and talk about that book that we gave them, but this model is, is limited. See, that student has to go to wherever the teacher is located. That student has to go and learn from that teacher. And <clears throat> some people just frankly aren't very good classroom learners. And it's not bad, is it? We need biblical teaching, of course. It's just not the way that Paul discipled people. So another model is the mentor. That sounds better to us, right? We like mentors. Uh, if you're not one to learn in a classroom setting, this sounds a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. We like that idea of having a mentor. And, and this model implies that the mentor is somewhat of, a, of an expert. Maybe their, uh, uh, their job is to give advice give lessons to the mentee to, to follow. The mentor might be saying, you know, something like, if you want success in your Christian walk, then follow this advice. Just do what I tell you to do. That's not bad. We like that. We love how when people give us a little bit of personal instruction. But again, this is limited because the two people aren't going out there together. They're not on this journey with Jesus together. It's one person telling the other person what to do. The third one is a coach. Sounds good to me, right? I like football. It's football season. I, I can see the importance of having a coach in my life. And when I'm at sporting events, I love to watch the team play, of course, but I always pay attention to the coach. Because I love watching a really good coach. 
And I love seeing that interaction between the coach and the players. Uh, because if a coach is full of enthusiasm and, and energy, then their team is as well. But where does the coach coach from? The sideline. The coach is always on the sideline. If the coach gets too far onto the court or if the coach runs out into the field, they get penalized for it. They're not supposed to be out on the court or the field. At least the, the coach is watching what's going on. But the design of a coach is to impart their knowledge and then keep that player engaged through the game. Now, that coach might give some advice, but the coach doesn't play the game. Now, there were times when Paul sent Timothy out to correct a problem at a, at a church. And if you read the two letters to, to Timothy that Paul wrote that are in our, in our Bible, you'll find times where he was a teacher, a mentor, a guide. Times when he was giving Timothy instruction and guidance and encouraging him to do a great job. But all of this was after Timothy had spent time with Paul. It was on the, the back end of that. When, when Paul sent Timothy to straighten out a church in Corinth, they had already traveled together. Timothy had already learned from Paul for seven years. Seven years Paul has been teaching, mentoring, coaching. But if you look closely, it's seven years of what's the fourth model of discipleship. He was Timothy's guide. So the biblical model of a discipler is to be a guide. A guide encompasses all of these different models, but a guide goes further. A guide goes the extra mile. A guide needs to be prepared just like the teacher. A guide needs to be experienced just like the mentor. A guide prepares you for the journey or the game just like a coach. But what makes you unique as a guide is the guide goes with the person they're discipling. A guide doesn't say, hey, I've taught you all that I know. Uh, I hope you make it out there alone. Good job. That's not what, a, not what a guide does. A guide walks the exact same journey with the disciple. This is exactly what we see Jesus do with the guys that are following him. For three years, they spent all this time together. They went where he went, and they, they did what he did, and they listened to him teach, and they saw him interact with others. And then when it was their time to be sent out, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then he adds this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always. That's not a teacher. It's not a mentor. It's not a coach. It's a guide. So what does a guide do? Just real quickly. Two things, presence over time. Discipleship is not this flash in a pan experience. Discipleship takes time and investment. And that's why God asks us to have dirty hands as well. 
It takes our hands uh, getting dirty in the lives of those that you are guiding so that they can progress on their walk with Jesus. And you're doing it together. Paul and Timothy spent a lot of time together. They had thousands of conversations with one another. They ate together. They hung out together. And along the way, Timothy was discipled by Paul. This week, I read a a pastor's answer to the question. He was asked, what must you do to disciple someone? And he said, well, it starts with proximity, meaning you have to spend time with your disciple. Second one is sharing of experiences. Paul and Timothy uh, back, Paul sends Timothy back to Corinth to deal with this church that had gone really off of the deep end. There was some bad stuff going on there. Why did he pick Timothy? There were other guys that were following him. There were other guys that were working with Paul. Why did he, why did he pick Tim? He picked Timothy because he knew he could trust Timothy. Why did he trust Timothy? Because they had already shared enough experiences together that he knew how Timothy was going to react. Timothy had built enough trust from Paul because Paul had been with him as he has guided him along the way. You see, our design as a disciple uh, is to eventually to make our own disciple. So we're not discipling disciples, we're actually discipling disciple makers because that's what they are supposed to become as well. How do we know that they're going to do a good job making disciples? Because we've spent time with them, because we've shared experiences with them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want you to watch this video. You have a mission. You are sent. You're propelled by God's love and it will not relent until you go. But wait, before you go, you should know what you're taking with you. What is it God will give you to further God's healing in broken places and spaces where faces have fallen into injustice? What has Jesus left us to lift up those lost in a lurch? Brothers and sisters of the church, the question isn't what, it's who. It's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. That's who Jesus left for me and for you, and the Holy Spirit is always more than enough. Tune your ear and you'll hear it. The reign of God's love, it started within, but then it took to the winds. It penetrates, permeates, saturates the air, so you can know wherever you go, God's already there. Continuing God's mission just means learning to listen. It means to build upon what's already being done, lives being saved and hearts being won, reclaiming those trapped in exploitation, leading our lands toward total transformation. There's no need to wait for further proclamation. You have a mission. You are sent. But wait, before you go, you should know what it meant. The gift of the Spirit meant we would have peace. What if everywhere we went, peace was released like the breath from our lungs? What if peace was so tangible we could reach out and grab it? So the question is, do you have it? The Spirit and God's peace? 
If so, then you're set and you are as ready as you're ever going to get. So go, don't wait to relate or for further debate on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The thing is God's plan needs you to move. So do it and count on resistance and the spirit to help you push through it. You have a mission. You are sent. You're repelled by God's love, so we cannot relent until everyone knows the name of Jesus. It's not time for us to pause or lay low. It's time for the church to get up and go. For the church to get up and go. If you have the Holy Spirit with you, and you do, if you've ever called upon the name of Jesus and asked him to forgive you, to be your Lord of your life, also know that you have been sent. We all have. And you will never be more ready, as scary as this is, than you are now. Because the Holy Spirit is with you. Too many times we think about uh, <clears throat> we think about uh, waiting for some huge elaborate call from, from Jesus to do something miraculous, like it's going to happen, or maybe it may never happen to me, or this, that call only happens to, to somebody else, to go somewhere exotic, to go somewhere challenging. The call is not to a where. The call is always to a Who? Even if you're who, maybe in this distant, far-off place, you're still called to a who. You're called to a person, a, a people, a who. You've been called, you've been commissioned, you have been commanded to go and make disciples, church. Do as Paul did. Be a guide. Do life with one another for the purpose of advancing each of your journeys with Jesus. We're going to conclude our service today in a celebration of baptism. And these individuals are coming forward today to tell the entire world that the, what the Lord has done for them and to say, I have been set aside for the glory of God. Maybe your who is one of these four being baptized. Maybe your who is your coworker, a friend, a cousin, a sibling, a neighbor, a spouse, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Do we? Are we? Who's your who? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, Lord, we thank you that you never have sent us out to do anything without your Holy Spirit. You command us, Lord, to go and to make disciples. But, you, Lord, we are scared to do it. We don't know how to do it. Maybe we've never had it modeled in our life. But yet we have friends and we have family and we have the Holy Spirit. We can do this. Lord, you would not ask us to do something if it was impossible for us to do. And Lord, if you are such a good God that if you're commanding us to do it, then surely you would be equipping us to do it. Thank you, Lord, that your truth is still true today. 
and surely I will be with you wherever you go. Jesus is always with us. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is going to be the one to help us with those conversations. We need not be in fear. We can do this, church. We have been called. We have been sent. We are the ones to, that are supposed to have our hands dirty in the lives of others. We are the church. We have been sent. Thank you, Jesus, for trusting us enough because you spent so much time with us. You know us, and you know we can do it. It's in your name that we pray, and all of us say together, amen.